Well, we are talking about faithfulness in these weeks and looking specifically at nine Psalms of David, where in tough times, David chooses to hang in there with God and chooses to trust that the relationship with God is resilient, chooses to trust that God is not brittle, and that therefore he can say and pray and sing what he's experiencing. And each psalm is sort of a different hue of faithfulness. There's a, a sense in which as you read these psalms, you, you get the, the sense that, that faithfulness is variegated. There are many colors, that it's, it's multifaceted. It's, it's a singular stone that has all of these facets off of which the light refracts differently and bends in different directions. And that's what we're looking at as we look at these nine aspects, if you will, of faithfulness. It's kind of like that, that song, if you remember it, uh, from the Disney movie Pocahontas, where it's, uh, you know, can you paint with all the colors of the wind is the song that the title character asks uh, this question. Can you see the various dimensions of this? None of them fully capture what the wind is, but there are all of these colors that make it up. And so it goes with faithfulness as well. And we are looking today at how faithfulness manifests as humility. And in some ways we're using a psalm that's primarily about arrogance <laughs> to identify this sense of, of humility in, in Psalm 14. It's a psalm about an arrogance and it's a choice of the psalmist, of David, to be faithful in the midst of the unfaithfulness that's manifest in that arrogance. And so looking at, at Psalm 14, David sings this. Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they shall be in great terror. For God is with the company of the righteous. You would confound the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that deliverance for Israel would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Let's pray. Lord, help us to step back from foolishness and to find rest in the wisdom that humbly acknowledges your presence even in those moments where we cannot feel you. Even in those moments where the evidence suggests that you either do not exist or you don't care what's happening here. Lord, help us to step back from that foolishness and rest in your presence. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
So as we get started this morning, I want to take us back to our high school or college English classes and maybe our English composition classes and talk a little bit about a rhetorical tool that our teachers taught us about. And it's a, a word called hyperbole. Hyperbole is exaggeration. It's overstating something. It's a rhetorical tool or it could be a fallacy even. And in short, it's nothing less than exaggeration. You use hyperbole when you want a reader or listener to know how bad you think things are. Overstate it so that they'll get it. It's not literally true, the overstatement, and everyone knows it's not literally true, but our situation when we write it feels like it's true and makes it seem as if it is true, and in the emotional fervor, we make one truth sometimes into the only truth, and that's hyperbole. And psalmists love hyperbole. If you read the Psalms, you can't read them without saying, ah, there it is, there it is again. They feel absolutely free to wear their hearts on their sleeves and to tell you just how bad they think something is. And that's what happens in Psalm 14. The world has gone to hell, essentially, is what the psalmist is saying. The world is in a hopeless place and I'm tired of it. You look at verses one through three and I'll just read them again. Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good, no, not, one, a little overstated, to say the least. No one who does good. God looks at the world, and what does he see? He sees nothing but a bunch of fools. That's what the psalmist is singing. Nothing but foolishness, because all have gone astray. All alike are perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. It's all bad. And there is only godlessness and all I can see right now is evil. There are times when we feel this way. <laughs> there are times, certainly in the current political climate, where it feels as if the side that is not my side is made up of those who are among those fools that this psalm seems to deride. And if this is so, if this is really true, no, not one, if that's really true, then there are really only two alternatives to respond to that kind of situation. Either eradicate your godless enemy or give up and let them have what they want and what you can no longer protect. And it sounds a lot like the tactics of contemporary political advertising, doesn't it? trying to convince us that our only choices are fight or flight. And if this truth of godlessness is the only truth, 
then perhaps fight or flight are the only two choices that we have to respond to that truth. But the psalmist talks himself into a bigger perspective. That's what happens in the next portion of the psalm. He widens the angle, if you will, in order to to take in a bigger picture. And says, in effect, things are messed up, but God is still God. And it's foolish to think that there is no God, even though I am sometimes tempted to step into this very place and to suspect that that atheism is the option we ought to take. What the psalmist does for us is say essentially true, the godless are eating up my people like bread, but their lack of belief, their arrogance is not the only truth. And it's something we've talked about before is that a lot of what faithfulness is about is to understand that there's more than one truth at play and how do we live holding on to both of those things. The Lord is God and God will be faithful in spite of the world's faithlessness and arrogance. The psalm is a call to step back, to lighten up, to move back from the truth that inspires that fight or flight kind of response and to ask ourselves what lasts, what outlives the arrogance that spawns evil and oppression. And in this way, I believe that Psalm 14 is a call to humility. It's a call to see that all of this that we are experiencing, all of this truth that makes us want to flee or fight actually fits into a bigger picture. And that bigger picture, when we behold it, gives us some other options. Do you know, as I look at this psalm, the, the psalm is not so simple as to be a call to strive to not be arrogant and to strive instead to be humble. In fact, it's not really about striving at all. It's not really an admonition to choose humility, and that's the falseness of my title. It's not like we choose and work toward and somehow take on humility. Because here's the thing about humility. You really don't actively choose it. You don't actively choose it or go after it or acquire it like it's some sort of commodity that can be made real in us through our own striving. It's something we become because we know who we are and because we know who we are not. And we rest in that truth. And I think the Beatitudes give us a hint about how this happens. The cornerstone of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you want to be happy, if you want to be blessed, if you want to know what it feels like to be available to the reality of the kingdom of God, then you're going to be experiencing these things. And in some ways... The Reader's Digest version of the Beatitudes is happy are the humble. That word blessed, makarios, 
in Hebrew, asherah, it's this sense of, of blessedness, this sense of well-being, this sense of feeling like you're on the right road, that you're in the right place. And, and when Jesus says the blessed are the people on the right road and in the right place, but they have a, a very interesting set of experiences that when you read it, it doesn't necessarily seem like Jesus is talking about being on the right road and in the right place. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes, this cornerstone of Jesus' teaching, this set of phrases that kind of add up to the conclusion, happy are the humble, these aren't things that we strive for, but they're descriptions instead of something bigger, of settling into some kind of bigger truth. They're states of being. They're not things that we can acquire or store away in in a box or, or put on a shelf. They're not commodities that we can possess. They're descriptors of a soul that is at rest and able to engage all of these states of being that Jesus describes. They're aspects of the humility that's born of resting in the truth that we belong to and are a part of God's reality, which is something bigger than the realities that we create. Humility is something that happens to us. And it's born of a, a kind of dance with God, an interplay we experience in, in really any relationship that we have, but especially in our relationship with God and in our closest relationships. It's kind of a dance of trust and mistrust, coming close and drawing back, a dance that teaches us faithfulness as we move toward and, and then wonder if we ought to step back. Every relationship knows that ebb and flow. And our relationship with God especially knows it. I love the image in, in Matthew 14. It's one of my favorite stories of Peter's life. We all know it. It is Peter and the disciples in the boat crossing the Sea of Galilee on one of those boat journeys where they keep going over to the other side in both Mark and Matthew. There's these, these constant boat journeys going on where they're back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. And there's a storm that comes up. Jesus has sent them on and he comes walking on the water toward them. And when they initially see him, they are scared to death. It is a ghost, they say. And it's Peter who tries to mitigate the situation and talks to the ghost, if you will, and says, if it's you, Lord, then bid me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. So Peter steps out of the boat, takes a few steps, and realizes where he is. 
and says something that I won't say right now uh, and <laughs> starts to sink. And then screams to Jesus, save me, Lord. Save me. It's so quick to make that move from, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the waters and to step out of the boat. And then to start to sink and say, save me, Lord. And it's really two pictures. The picture of Jesus as a ghost and the picture of Jesus as Lord. The picture of Jesus as kind of a fabrication and something that we're not quite sure we can put our weight down on and Jesus as the one who holds all things together and Peter moves so quickly between those two things. It's two pictures but it's also two prayers that we pray in the, in the midst of experiencing those pictures. The big picture which inspires us to say, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the waters. Let me demonstrate my desire to be faithful to you. And then the small picture when we begin to sink and feel closed in in that narrow and cramped space where the waters are coming up over our head. The small picture inspires the prayer, save me. As we begin to sink, that's what we cry out. And I want to propose to you an image of humility today. And it's neither Peter crying out to Jesus, if it's you, Lord, bid me to come to you, nor is it, save me, Lord, for I'm sinking. It's the sopping wet Peter who's back in the boat headed for the other side. The humble Peter. That's the picture of humility I want us to keep with us. It's something that Peter didn't do to achieve anything, but it's something that he knows beyond any doubt in that moment as he is dripping wet and having experienced just what he did. It's the picture of Peter not as the one of faith that he musters up it's the picture of Peter that's not merely about his courage or even about his cowardice. It's the picture of Peter that's about a relationship with one who both invites us to risk and lifts us up when we're afraid. And when we experience both of those things, we know what it means to be humble. I'll say it again, humility is not a trait. Humility is not a commodity that we need in order to acquire God or find God. Jesus in the Beatitudes isn't saying, if you can figure out humility, then I'll come to you. No, he's with us and teaching us humility in the midst of that presence. Humility is not a commodity that we need to acquire in order to find God. Humility is the result of being found by God and resting in that gift. And for me, one of the best pictures of humility is the 131st Psalm. And I want to close with that and, and make it 
our closing prayer. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is with me. Lord, help us to rest in this place of knowing that whether we are stepping out of the boat in faith or sinking at the loss of that faith, that you are with us. And in the consistency of your presence, help us to find that gift of humility that you will give us. Of knowing that we belong body and soul in life and in death, not to ourselves, but to you. And can rest in that. For we pray in your name.